Our good Lord, we ask that your word would be a lamp unto our feet, that it would be a light unto our path, that by it we would see Jesus, your beloved Son and our Savior, and that by seeing him, we would be changed. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we continue our journey through the season of Lent and we move closer and closer to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the celebration of these two foundational historical events that have changed the world, we've been doing this series called At the Cross, whereby we have been taking what happened at the cross and we have been looking at it from different angles and considering what this means for us here and now. And so the first week we saw how in the eyes of the world, the cross can simply be viewed as the height of human folly and weakness. So a humiliating and shameful defeat for one who claimed to be someone so important and so significant and doing such a great work seems a lot like folly and weakness. But in the eyes of God, somehow this event that looks so weak and so helpless is actually his power at work to rescue us. And last week, we looked at the revealing power of the cross. So we looked at the cross and how it serves as a window into the very heart of God. So if we want to know what is going on in the innermost depths of God and his heart for us, we need to look at the cross because that is the display. That is God communicating who he is to us in a very clear way. And today we're taking a different turn and we're going to be looking at the reconciling power of the cross. Or in other words, the cross's ability to bring together. So the main storyline of the Bible from cover to cover is that something has gone terribly wrong in our relationship with God. And and in what has gone wrong in that relationship, it impacts every other relationship that we have in this world. And so this massive work of reconciliation is going on that's spearheaded by God himself. And at the center of this work of reconciliation is the power behind it. And it's found in the cross. And so to help us all more clearly see this and better grasp the gravity of it, for us, I want to consider this in three different ways. So I want us to consider the why of reconciliation. I want us to consider the how of reconciliation. And then I want to consider what it means for us. So the why, the how, and what it means for us. So first, the why. why the why of reconciliation. Why is it needed? And why is it so important? And why are we saying that it is such a good and precious gift that we are meant to prize and live in light of? So when you read the Bible cover to cover, what you will find out along the way is that it is not simply just a collection of religious wisdom or historical events, that this book that we have gathered around is relational through and through. That's what it is at the very heart of it. And if you go back to the very beginning to where humanity was created, it's clear that we were created, made, designed 
to live in a full, close, life-giving relationship with the one who made us. But before we know it, something goes terribly wrong and humanity is choosing to go its own way apart from God. And so right off the bat, we find humanity uh, hiding. We find humanity in fear. We find humanity trying to cover up what went wrong. And we find humanity outside of this dwelling place of God. We see right off the bat this breach of relationship, something that was meant to be so good and so beautiful and so life-giving finds itself in pieces, broken, crushed. There are some of you in here who, who know personally the pain of a spouse leaving you, of a spouse cheating on you, of a spouse giving up on you. And if you've not experienced that, it's not hard to step into those shoes and imagine what it might feel like. And if you have experienced this, this might sound strange, but God knows what it is like to be you. At the heart of what's happened between us and God is God has experienced rejection. He has experienced infidelity. He has been passed over. He has been found to be not worthwhile and worth our attention. And he has been given up on. What happens in the break of our relationship with God is not this nice mutual breakup. It is us looking to him and saying, no, thank you. We want to go our own way. Despite all that you are, despite all that you've done, we think we can do better without you. This was our idea. It was our doing. And it leaves us in a desperate place that our chapter in Ephesians draws out. Verse 17, we are far off. Verse 19, we're strangers. We're aliens. You get a picture of this. We have lost our home. We have lost that place that we were meant to, our lives were meant to fit like a hand in a glove. It's, it's, it's what we were made for and we've lost it. Verse 12, separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. That's when... God had begun to do this work even in Israel. We as Gentiles or nations find ourselves even on the outside of this work. Verse 12, without God, having no hope. What what all of those are trying to communicate is this life that is apart from God. This life that is cut off from who God is for us. Now I want you to think about what these psalmists say about this relationship with God. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Psalm 63, your steadfast love is better than life. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart, my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and is my portion forever. What those communicate is this longing, this desire for a relationship that we were meant to live fully 
in. Think about these words of Blaise Pascal, mathematician and somewhat theologian hundreds of years ago. It's printed in your worship guide. He talks about these cravings and these desires that, that we all have and that we, we all share this longing for true happiness. He says, we try to fill it, this void, this desire with everything around us, though nothing can help since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an, with an uh, immutable object. In other words, by God himself, an infinite an immutable object. It's often been described as humanity having a a God-sized hole in our lives. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about if if your family has a pool in the back of your yard and that pool happens to be empty of all water and your child looks at that and says, this isn't right, this pool is meant to be filled up and so I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go inside, I'm gonna get a cup I'm going to fill it with water and I'm going to come outside and I'm going to dump it in this. They dump it in. Doesn't quite fill it up to the top. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to try this again. And I'm going to do that a couple times. You can imagine this child doing this for a very long time and it's not going to work. That's the picture that Pascal is trying to give us of of how we are searching for happiness validation, affirmation, approval, love, security, meaning, and all sorts of these other things. We're, we're taking these cups and we're, we're dumping them in our lives thinking that they will fill it up to the brim and it will make it make us whole. And what we're finding is the same thing that the child would find, that it doesn't work because our lives were meant to be filled with something very different, something much better. It's as Augustine said long ago in his, his powerful work, Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. There is a restlessness because of a need for this reconciliation with God. We were made for this, but the problem is we find ourselves in a place where we cannot make this right. It's beyond our ability to repair. We can't make a bridge, no matter how hard we try, to to cover the length and depth of this abyss. The bridge must be built from the outside. So that's, that's the why of reconciliation, of why we need it. And now here's the how of it. So, in the beginning of his very short story, The Capital of the World, uh, Ernest Hemingway, he makes a very, very brief reference to another story of a father who is looking for his son, who has rebelled, who has left, who has wandered. Father is searching. He goes to this capital city of Madrid, and in his search for his son, he puts an ad in the local paper. And the ad simply reads, Paco, meet at Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. So that day that the father shows up at this hotel hoping to see his son, but what he finds is the 
uh, a squad of police cars and this huge crowd of people. And what happened is there are around 800 other young men named Paco who showed up with the hopes that that would be them. That it was their father who was looking for him so desperately and that it was their father who was welcoming them home. And Hemingway tells it somewhat as as a joke, tongue in cheek. And there's a humor about it. But as I was thinking about that, there's something much deeper to that. It expresses something about humanity, this longing that we have. With God, we don't find someone with arms crossed, with a cold look on his face, with a message that says, I'm done with you. I don't even think about coming back. Or if you are thinking about coming back, you need to get your stuff in order before you come back and make sure you you never do that again. Our father is on a mission to reconcile his wayward children to himself. And the cross is God the Father saying, all is forgiven. Come home. All is forgiven. Come home. What gets us into trouble is not our sins. What gets us into trouble is not our failures. What gets us into trouble is not our mistakes. What gets us into trouble is our refusal to come home. That is what gets us into the most trouble and is our deepest problem. Verse 17, And He, Jesus, came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who are near. At the end of most wars, when peace is extended, it basically means we agree to stop fighting for each other, against each other. But we're not friends, let's get that clear, and we're, we're sure as heck not family. We're just agreeing to stop fighting. When God extends his peace to us, it is not just a ceasefire. We've talked in the past about peace as this restoration and fullness and thriving. He's bringing us into a life-giving and perfect, flourishing relationship with himself. It's not God just saying, I'm not mad at you anymore. It's him saying, like in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your sins from you. As, As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great my love is for you. As a father has compassion on their own child, that's the way that I feel and act towards you. That's, that's peace. Fullness. Verse 19, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You're fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Citizens of the kingdom under the protection and care of the good king, members of his household. That can sound pretty formal. I don't introduce my family as members of my household. I don't say this is the first member of my household and these are the two younger members of my house. What that means when God says that is that we are family. Not by birth, but by adoption. Earlier in Ephesians, he says, in him, in Jesus, we've been adopted 
1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished. Lock into that word, lavished. How great is the love He's lavished upon us. We should be called His children, and that's what we are. How did He do it? How did this bridge happen, this reconciliation happen? Verse 13, by the blood of Christ, by this shameful, painful, humiliating death of the beloved Son of God on a cross is somehow, some way, which we will explain in the upcoming weeks, the bridge by which we are brought back into the family, brought back as sons, as daughters, as those who are beloved. That's the how at the cross brought back together. So finally, what does it mean for us? There are two observations that I want to focus on and then we'll close. First, the reconciling power of the cross means that because of Jesus and by by faith in him, that we find ourselves as believers in a secure, close, and life-giving relationship with him here and now. So when I was in fifth grade, we had this class project where we broke up into groups and we made these bridges out of toothpicks. Now, this is a big deal. This is something that took uh, weeks for us to construct. And we, uh, we went through how much the cost materials were and, how, um, and our designs. And we wanted to make it as strong as possible. But toothpicks, as you can imagine, are not exactly the strongest material to make a bridge out of. And all we were able to use to hold these toothpicks together was just a certain amount of Elmer's glue that we couldn't even coat it with. We just had to dip it. We, we only had a little bit. So that's the kind of materials that we have to make this bridge. And our goal was to make it so that this bridge would withstand uh, the most weight possible. And you can imagine as we began to put weight on this toothpick bridge that we had spent weeks constructing, that it did not take a lot of weight for that thing to just crush. When it comes to our relationship with God, some of us can easily live, myself included, as if our relationship with God was very fragile, somewhat like a a bridge made out of toothpicks. That if, if we're to put the weight of our sin, if we're to put the weight of our mistakes, our failures, if we're to really be honest about who we are, if we're to put the weight of our weaknesses, of our guilt, if, if we mess up too much, that bridge, that relationship is just going to crumble and fall. It's not strong enough. What we need is for us to be better and to not put as much weight on this bridge. That is not the gospel. I hope you're able to see that. I hope I am able to see that. On the way to my parents, we have to drive over this bridge that goes over an ocean inlet. It's a big bridge, four lanes, metal, concrete. I have never driven over that bridge and wondered if that bridge can sustain the weight of my car. It's not on my mind. It's obvious. This bridge can hold all of the weight of me, our minivan, our family, whatever bikes we have packed on the back. It's, I'm not worried about it. 
that's the kind of security that we are meant to have in our relationship with God. God can handle and hold whatever sin, whatever weakness, whatever burdens we bring, and we try to drive across this grace. Verse 18, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. This access, this bridge. Verse 22, in him, in Jesus, we're being built into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. That is, we are home in the strangest way for God. As much as we are trying to find our home in him, he is finding his home in us. What kind of spirit lives inside of us? Romans 8 says it's not a spirit of fear. It's not a spirit of slavery. It's a spirit of adoption by which we cry out in the most intimate language, Abba, Father. If you are a Christian, this is your reality and you are invited to live in it. If you are not a Christian, this is an invitation to you. The message of Christianity is not make yourself better and then God may forgive you and he may like you. It is this is what God has done for you to bring you back to him. Do not linger. Do not wait. Come as you are. Second and finally, the reconciling power of the cross means that because of Jesus, we are to pursue reconciliation with others, especially those within the family of God. The background of this passage that we didn't dive into was this conflict and tension and division between Jews and non-Jews. He talks about it as, as a wall of hostility that is dividing, and the picture is the cross busts down this wall. It's like the Berlin Wall being crushed piece by piece being dismantled. That's what the cross does. It's meant to break down the barriers that keep us from one another. And a key theme of this whole letter, if you go home and read it this afternoon, is one of unity that Paul is trying to bring people together in light of all their differences, in light of all the ways that we hurt each other. He's trying to bring them together as one. And For this last point, I want to leave you not with a long explanation of this, but just a few questions. And I want you to to think about people you struggle with, specifically even in the church community. How does the way God feels about the person you struggle with, how does the way God feel about them influence the way you yourself feel about them? How does the love God has for the person you struggle with influence the way you love them? How does the forgiveness God has shown this person you struggle with influence the way you forgive? How does the fatherly affection and commitment to this person you struggle with influence the way you think and act and speak? Um, When my boys fight, And I'm trying to encourage them to love each other. It's not just that I want them to see. To see their brother as someone that they are meant to love. 
I want them to see my affection for this person that they might be hurting. I want them to see how much this other human means to me. And I want that to influence the way that they see and love this person. I wonder how our relationships as a body moving forward might be changed and influenced if we were able to see each other through the lenses or through the eyes of our Father. How that might reshape some of what we say, some of what we don't say, some of what we think, some of what we do. Our calling is to be reconciled people who seek reconciliation with others. All because of this hope, 1 Peter 3.18, and this is it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've done so much to bring us back to you. If there are those in here who do not know you in this way, would they come to you quickly and believe that you are a God who is eager to welcome? For those of us who who do place our faith in you, we so often live as orphans. We live as if our relationship with you was as strong as a, a bridge made out of toothpicks and we minimize the grace and strength in which we're meant to stand firmly. So would you help us to live in that? And would you help us to love others, to see others as you see them, to love others as you love them, to be a people of extraordinary unity that might even be a picture for a world that is just marked by division and cutting and harshness and violence that we might be a picture, a beautiful picture of something very different, of a God who is reconciling. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.